Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the Word. Father God, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for what you're going to do, how you're going to move. We thank you for the Word, the blessing it is to be able to open it up in a room like this and be able to allow the living God of this living Word to be living and active through us. Help us to not just come to this like it's just another set of words on a page, but understand that this passage that we're reading is how you as a loving Father has chosen to reveal himself to us. We are reading a miracle of a God revealing himself to people. And then I pray as we read that we understand that this word is unlike any other written thing ever, that this is actually a living and active word that's supposed to become activated as we live this out, understand what it means. And I pray that I wouldn't be able to just do a good job explaining what this means, but you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to be a people who show the world what these things that we're reading means. So that in doing so, we would be able to show them you, your love, so that the lost would be found, so that the dead would be risen so that blind would be able to see for your glory and your name. Amen. If you got a Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read you pretty much all of the chapter. We'll take you to almost all of it today. That way we get a little bit of context. We're going to primarily lean into verses 12 and 13 today, but for the sake of me not having to do a giant to do of recapping and going back over all the stuff we have over the course of the last few weeks. I want to just be able to hopefully get that in your mind. We're going to talk about it a little bit, but grab your Bible, Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going word by word, verse by verse through this. Let's dive in. Hebrews 12, we'll go 1 through 13 today. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance this race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there who the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God the father, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now here's our passage for today, 12 and 13. Therefore, in light of all the things he's already just said, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What this pastor has done 
over the course of him navigating through all the beginning parts of chapter 12 is given his church and hopefully given us too a theology of pain and Christian, a godly understanding of what in the world God would do in and through our pain. And this is something that's so critical for us to grasp because in this world, the thing that we can know is a guarantee is you will go through pain. Some of you, the most painful things in your life, praise God, those are actually things that are behind you. Some of them, you are people in this room who the painful, the most painful thing that you are going to go through in your life is actually something you are going through at this very moment. And that's heavy and that's hard. But friend, can I tell you, if that's what you feel like and that's where you're at, praise God that you are here today. Praise God that he has orchestrated the elemental levels of your life to bring you into an environment like this where you can hear hopefully a message that brings back a fire to your heart. And then some of you, the greatest pain that you'll face in this life is in your future. To which I would say, do not waste today. Let it be a day where you prepare your heart for what may come. This passage was written to a church where the pastor knew all too well that pain was coming, especially in the form of persecution to the church. There's this group of people who he's writing to who are coming out of a Jewish heritage and they're living under the rule of the Roman empire and they're kind of stuck between a rock and the hard place. They're facing this dilemma, do I compromise my faith or do I hold fast to Jesus? Do I continue on and remain under this burden and this weight that it is following Jesus or do I cop out? It's getting hard for them. And it almost seems like the the deeper they get into their relationship with Jesus and the closer they try to follow him, the harder things actually get. And I would be willing to bet that there are some people even here among us that would agree that that is their plot in life as well. One of the points that he's making here is that pain is pressure, that pain produces this pressure in our lives. That's why over and over again in this passage, the beginning parts, he's saying we need endurance. The word endurance is a Greek word that is in a compound word that means remain under. He's saying this pain, it's going to put a weight on you. It's going to weigh you down. It's going to create pressure. And what he's saying is that pressure is actually prescribed by a heavenly father who loves you, that the pressure is actually sent not to crush you, but for to, to produce something great in you and hopefully through you. He says it's given by a loving heavenly father. This is what the majority of that passage of verses seven through 11 is all about. The fact that pain is not a thing that should tell us that God has abandoned us, that pain is actually proof positive that God has actually adopted us. It confirms us and gives us the confirmational gift that you have a God who sees what's going on, a God who's with you in the midst of those things. And as I have looked through and thought through and processed through this, my hope and my prayer is that we understand that pain is a pressure that turns the dirtiest, worst things of our life into actual diamonds. It's the thing that refines us. It's the thing thing that doesn't allow us to burn out, but it's actually the thing that burns away the impurities of our faith so that we can grow closer to him. And it's coming from a father who looks at a kid like me and like you and says, I want them to grow closer to me. And then that same father who looks at you and looks at me, his children who he loves, he says, in order for them to go closer, in order for them to go deeper, I will prescribe pain. Now, 
we can be at our place right here and go like, why would a loving God do that? Well, think about it like this. If, if you had a cancerous tumor somewhere on your gallbladder, let's pick a random organ. You had cancerous tumor on a gallbladder, okay? We can curse the scalpel that cuts us or we can realize that it is a tool in the hand of a loving surgeon who must remove the things that are unhealthy from our life. See, our theology on pain has to understand that what God isn't is a emergency room doctor where we get wheeled in on a stretcher and there's just blood and guts everywhere and he's just trying to put all that back together. What God is, is he is the doctor who schedules and plans and purposes to take out his scalpel or to take out his chisel, whatever metaphor you wanna use, and comes in and actually intentionally plans to remove and to transform out of you the impurities and the things that would ruin and kill and damage and destroy not only your life, but those closest to you as well. And so this passage, if we're really gonna understand 12 and 13, I think it's essential that we understand 11. 11. 11. 11. Why does this always happen? 11, there it is, hey-o. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Thank you, we all agree. But later, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The point he's trying to make here is that this righteousness is something that God brings about via pain. And this is a fruit that we want to see happen. And in verse 11, he's kind of summing up verses one through 10 that give us this theology of pain and how we should let it discipline us, how we should let it train us. And then he enters back into verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Anytime you see it, therefore, it's hearkening back to what happened before. So when he says, hey, you've got pain happening in your life and it's not pleasant, but it's painful. But after a while, it's going to train you and it's going to produce a harvest of righteousness and, and peace. His point there in explaining that is to then go, okay, now here's what comes from that. Now that you know that that's what pain does, lift your hands up, strengthen your weak knees, clear things out of your path and like, make a straight walk in this race that God has called you to. Removing obstacles so that you can truly follow after him. Now I wanna zoom out a little bit to be able to put what this pastor is doing in a little bit more of a, a large scale context so we can really grasp what's going on so that we can get a good grasp of, of what in the world God does in the midst of our pain. Check it out like this. What in the world? Lord of mercy. Go to the one with a bunch of things on it. Do I need to press something? No? Okay. Let's all just think and talk and pray for a second. It was yesterday. All right. I want you to show, I'm going to show it to you in your Bible. We're going to figure out things in a second. Here we go. 
Go and look at verse two. You're in chapter 12, look at verse two. Verse two is the key to this entire chapter. Verse two is explaining and telling us that we must look to Jesus. This is the key to understanding all of this is eyes locked on Jesus. Seeing and understanding who he is. When you really see what Jesus has done, it melts your heart. The Holy Spirit does amazing things through you being able to see that. Once you see Jesus, then and only then can you begin to actually lay down your weight and your sins because you will never, until you really see who Jesus is, see how sinful you are in the right context. You'll think there's less there than there really is because you haven't measured your life up to perfect righteous life. Once you see Jesus and once you stay looking at Jesus, wow, that's why it's in yellow, while, while we're continuing to look at him, we lay down weight and sin. From there, then we actually start to run this race. Like we talked about, the problem with a lot of us is we start to run the race without ever looking to Jesus and without ever getting rid of the weight and sin. He says, while you're looking to Jesus, lay down the weight and sin, run the race with endurance, and then in this section, which is three through 11, he begins to explain to them God's purposes and pain, and he explains to them that the key to being able to understand and overcome the pain that we experience even in our own life is by looking to Jesus and the pain that he endured for, all, for us and on our behalf as he ultimately gave his life on the cross. So consider his pain even as you endure yours. And this whole section here, key three through 11, is to help us see that in the midst of our pain, there is a father who is purposing this pain. There is a father who is controlling this pain, a loving father who would, who would not say, I'm gonna let you go through way more than you have to, but a father who would say, I'm, I have your pain measured to a molecular level. I know exactly how far it will go. I am not gonna make you go through anything more than what you have to go through enable, in order for the fruit to come from this. So right there in the middle, he gives them that. And then he comes back to things that they're actually supposed to do here in verses 12 and 13. So he says, lift up your hands, strengthen weak knees, make sure it passes through your feet. This is a bunch of imperatives, but before you can actually grasp the imperatives, the things in the white, you have to understand the theology he's breaking down to them in verses three through 11. There's two principles that he's putting on display to them. It's self-discipline and imposed discipline. All right, self-discipline and imposing. Last week I told you, hey, we're gonna talk about the difference between God's discipline on us and self-discipline that comes kind of out of us, all right? I would say it like this. This passage is showing us how self-discipline prepares and protects us from the moments when imposed discipline happens to us. Let's go backwards if we can. Oh, backwards. No, that's too far. Bro. No, I don't want to sing greater you, Lord. All right, let's talk. I'm not touching this again, the rest of the service, guys, so you can do whatever you want up there, all right? When God disciplines us, in this passage, he is showing us that the discipline that you'll experience in your life the things that are supposed to be out of your love for Christ, your laying down of your flesh, your laying down weight and sins, those are things that should happen as we look to Christ. But there is also, and this is what he's trying to explain to this church, there are things that fall under the category of imposed discipline, okay? Imposed discipline is all the bad things that happened to your life that you would have never ever chose, okay? This is cancer, this is divorce, this is a prodigal child, 
This is a financial crisis, a global pandemic. This is a, a recession or a depression. This is all of those things. These are imposed disciplines. These are things you never would have chosen in your life, but they're things that happen to you that you have to navigate through that cause you to adjust, to do things differently. And I believe what this pastor is showing to them, and you can see this in the sandwich that was this created. If I was able to use the slides, I would show you it this way. He says, look to Jesus. And then he says, run the race, strip off all the weight that's around you. Get this understanding of when you face imposed discipline, it's coming from a loving, caring, kind father. And then he starts back over again with self-discipline. Okay, because of that, you gotta understand that you have a father who loves you and cares for you. Now, lift up your hands, strengthen your knees, clear obstacles out of your way. Take and embrace the self-discipline so that when imposed discipline, and then again, in the Hebrews case, this equaled persecution. When the persecution happens, you're ready for it. You're prepared for it. So if you're, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Self-discipline prepares us for times when imposed discipline happens. Self-discipline prepares us for imposed discipline. Here's what I mean by this. When your eyes are locked on Jesus, when you are running this race because you've stripped off the weight and sin and you're running it with, with good good endurance, when negative things happen to you, you're prepared for them. You're not caught off guard because you understand that if my eyes really are locked on Jesus, I'm going to kick up a little bit of trouble down here. If my eyes are really locked on Jesus, this God who went to a cross and died for me, it may stir up some controversy from time to time. In love and grace, I'm going to try to wake the dead. And there may be things that happen to my life that are less than ideal, that I didn't choose, but because I have already been choosing the better but harder discipline of locking my eyes with Jesus, which means taking them off of everything else and looking to him singularly. I'm, not, I'm no longer looking for a spouse to be God to me. I'm no longer looking for my, my kids to prove positive that I am in fact a good person. I'm no longer looking to money to be my God. I'm no longer looking for power or esteem or influence to be what makes me feel good about myself. I'm only solely looking to Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Now that I've seen that, I get to this place where if discipline or hardship or sickness, pain, frustration, when that comes into my life, now I'm ready because my heart is prepared because my eyes are locked on Jesus. Secondly, and you know this, discipline, the self-discipline stuff, it actually protects us. It protects us from times when imposed discipline happens. For a second, let's just bubble out of the spiritual realm so that you can understand this just from a, a principal side of things. Let's talk about your money. Financially speaking, if you are financially disciplined, you practice self-discipline with your money, you save, you don't live in your means, you actually choose to live below your means. You have emergency funds set up. You're not paycheck to paycheck. I know I'm not describing almost anybody in this room right now, unfortunately. Um, when you're actually financially disciplined, what it does is when a imposed financial crisis happens in your country, you're not panicked. You're not losing your mind right now. You're not having to go, um, well, do I continue to give to the church or do I continue to do these things? Well, I'm gonna have to take my kids out of the schools. Now they have to go, you're, you're, you're panicking because you weren't prepared. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. 
this self-discipline in almost every area of our life actually prepares us for the times when imposed discipline happens. And let me just give you a principle, and, and, and maybe I'm explaining some things that have happened in your life the way that have happened in my life. And this is, the, this is how God's imposed discipline and self-discipline actually work together. If I am the most, if I am undisciplined, and then imposed discipline happens in my life, death in the family, some really terrible news, financial crisis, whatever, pick whichever one you want. And I'm already a very undisciplined person. Do you know what that does to me? It steamrolls me and it crushes me because I'm not prepared for this at all. And I'm not protected from this at all because I haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to do the things that this verse is telling us to do. See, it's given us a theology of pain and it's telling us it's coming from a father, but what it's not doing is going, you're all off the hook and you just don't have to do anything. Just take it as it comes. It says, no, there's a way to go through pain and let the pain do only what God wanted it to do and no more. When it comes to your relationships, if you in your marriage have practiced relational discipline of like this crazy concept of actually talking about how you feel instead of slamming cabinets harder, um, or stacking plates stronger, you know, you can, you can always tell something's wrong when somebody's putting away dishes. And it's like, you can hear it from four rooms over. It's like, something must be up. He's been in the garage for four days. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> like if you've practiced the discipline of navigating through your junk and communicating and talking, well then when something is imposed upon your marriage, whether it's you gotta move in an aging parent or whether it's a, a child who figures out that they're pregnant at 16, when, when some crisis happens in your family because you've been disciplined relationally in your marriage, the marriage is prepared to handle that because you've practiced the discipline before the imposed thing attacked you, that you had no choice. You never chose that, but because you chose to be prepared in the self-discipline, you're ready. Physically, it's the same way. It's physical discipline. For, for the majority of people in this room, if me and you go hiking somewhere where there are bears, you're gonna get eaten, not me because I believe I can outrun almost everybody in this room. There might be some of you young people who I can't outrun, but I think I can outrun almost all of you. And you're like, well, that's not nice. A pastor's supposed to lay down his life for a sheep. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It said, lay down your life. You know, that was about wolves, not about bears. I can run from bears. What I'm saying is this, this is a principle that we all understand on simple things like our money, our marriages, and our health. But when it comes to our spiritual life, sometimes we don't, we don't apply these like, duh, principles to our life as we follow Christ. This is where spiritual discipline comes into play. This is where my discipline of being in the word, of being in prayer, not just when things are bad, it begins to build up this firm foundation in me so that when something crazy or some kind of crisis happens, it doesn't knock me down. It doesn't crush me under it. And that's why this pastor is giving them the things that he is and saying, look to Jesus, lay aside weight and sin, run the race marked out for you. Understand that pain is from a good, loving, kind, caring father. Lift up your hands, worship and praise. 
get your knees who are trembling in fear of what you thought the Romans or, or the Jews would do to you and quit the knee shaking. Understand that you have a kingdom shaping father who is moving and active inside of you. And know that your discipline will prepare you and your discipline will protect you. Now here's, here's why and here's how. Some of you are hearing this whole talk about discipline and you're like, mm, that's one thing I'm really bad at. When, when you do a spiritual gift test, self-control is at the very bottom. Like you saw the donuts over there and you had to remind yourself, I'm at church, I can't eat four. I'm at church, I can't eat four. <laughs> Here, here's what you need to understand. When we talk about self-discipline, we're not talking about the things that the Stoics were talking about actually before Jesus was even on the scene of this masochistic, I'm just gonna deny my flesh, deny my flesh, deny my flesh. And because and, here's the thing, the world is, can be really self-disciplined. There's really self-disciplined people who do not have Jesus in their life and do not recognize him as Lord. But here's what's wild, is we have godly power in and through us to actually be disciplined. And it's this gift that we have, this gift of the Holy Spirit. This is where our discipline is not just self-discipline because most of us in this room, if we just rely on ourselves, we know we don't have a whole lot of that. Some of you, we've already blown through New Year's resolutions. I, I tried. I want to show you a verse out of the book of Galatians. Can we maybe try to have it? Look at God. For the desire of the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. So track with me here. What he's saying is you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and you have your flesh. Now, most of us go through about 98% of our life only operating on the flesh. Like if you had to go back and track the whole entire last week, how many, of, how many of you would really honestly say that you had moments that you can point to and go back to where you would say, those were moments where I was walking by the Spirit last week? See, that's, that's, you're going, mm. you should be able to point to those. They should almost be written down. You should be taking notes on them in your phone. These moments and times where you know you were walking by the Spirit. But what happens is we get in the current of the mainstream and we just continue to go and we go and we go and we go and we get in our habits and we just continue to float. And what happens is we're living life by the flesh and not by the spirit. And what the Bible is telling us is these two are at war inside of us. Every decision you make, what to look at, what to eat, where to go, what to say, what to not say, these are battles between the spirit and our flesh. And what he says here, and this is awesome, is the flesh is given to us in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. Now you're like, well, that sounds constrictive. My inner self doesn't like that. Well, here's, here's what you need to understand. The things that you want to do will kill you. That's just where sin leads. When I'm ever God, what does Eve wants to do? The Bible makes it clear. You can even see that what's going on in her mind. It gives us, it doesn't just say Eve ate it. It says Eve saw that it was pleasing to the eye and looked like it was really good food. It's like God gives us a window into her eternal dialogue. She wants this. But here's the thing. The things that we want, our flesh, the things that we want out of our flesh are sin. And sin leads where? Death. So this isn't constrictive. This is freeing. This is why Jesus, this is crazy that he would say this. Jesus, as he was getting ready to 
go to the cross and give his life, he told his disciples something that if you had been there, you'd been like, hold up, stop, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Explain that, please. He said, guys, it is better that I leave than if I stay here with you. And they're like, pause. And they track in their mind. Like, well, when you're here, 5,000 plus people get fed on a hillside. When you're here, blind people see. When you're here, the greatest sermon ever preached gets preached. When you're here, a woman who's been suffering with issue of blood for 12 years is perfectly fine. When you're here, this naked guy who attacked us when our boat landed on the shore, who had a legion of demons in him, they're all cast out. How can you tell us this is going to be better if you're not here? That doesn't make any sense. And what Jesus goes to tell them is, I am sending you one of the mis- most misunderstood aspects of following Christ. He says, I am sending you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does for us, track with me on this. We talk about God a lot. We talk about Jesus as the son a lot, but we fail to talk enough about the Holy Spirit sometimes. What the Holy Spirit offers us is Christ inside of us. So now, as opposed to Jesus being on earth in one place at one time, he's in Samaria this day, he's in Judea the next day, Jesus can be everywhere we are. His church is now not confined by buildings and walls. His church is anywhere his body is, inside of the body of his followers. Now this Holy Spirit is better than Christ beside us because it's Christ where? Inside. And this is what enables us to have this actual discipline because it's the same spirit of Christ who suffered what he suffered and went through what he went through. If you got a second, I'd love you to grab your Bible and, and flip backwards a little bit into Hebrews. Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews five, just probably a couple pages back. Hebrews five, verse seven. This is the spirit of Christ here that is now in us here. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, this is Jesus when he was here, walking and breathing and acting and living and doing what we do. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. All right, so this is Jesus doing what a lot of us are doing down here. Going, this, this, this depression is this close to death. God, help me, save me, need you. God, I can't handle these kids. I can't handle this marriage. God, I can't handle these finances. If something doesn't change, I'm gonna die. He's saying Jesus has been there. Jesus felt those things. Jesus actually yelled out to the same father that you're crying out to right now, that that spirit that was in him is actually echoing similar words than you're saying right now. And then he says, and he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard because of him not letting what felt like it was crushing him cause him to cop out on God's call for him. This is when he says, if there's any way this cup can pass, please let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will. My question is how many times in our prayers, even our desperate prayers, are we saying that at the end of them? 
God, I don't want the cancer to go away, period. God, I don't want the cancer to go away. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. God, I don't want the marriage to be restored, period. That's where we leave it most of the time. But nevertheless, not my will, Lord, but yours. God, I want to be out of this debt as fast as possible. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will. This is the reverence that he calls us to Beckham to. And then he goes on to say, in verse eight, although he was a son, through what he, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. So this, this verse has to throw out the window that when God sends suffering into your life, it's punishment for the bad things that you've done. Okay, so track with me. There's Jesus. How many bad things has he done? How much suffering does he get? All of it. Suffering is not a sign necessarily of punishment for regret and problems. What happens is the punishment that brings us peace is fully upon Jesus. And in this world, again, you'll face some consequences for the sinful, stupid decisions you make. But when God looks at you and sees what you're doing, what he's doing is he actually reframes pain and he reframes the punishment for the things that you do that are wrong and says all of the punishment for these are actually on him so that now you can learn from these in a way where you're not having to walk through the punishment. But you can learn from these things because you have disciplined yourself with step one of the discipline that he brings from the beginning. Look to Jesus and see there on that cross the one who suffered the full punishment for the dumb thing you just did. And then learn from it and grow from it and then go away from it as you kill the desires of your flesh. So you can look at a verse like this and go, again, that sounds restrictive. It's keeping me from doing whatever I want to do. Or you can understand that what the Holy Spirit is actually trying to bring about in your life is not restriction, but it's actually trying to bring about freedom. The truth here that you need to understand is that discipline actually does equal freedom. The discipline that God would bring about in your life is not trying to restrict your life. Some of you, the reason you abandoned or walked away or didn't want to be any part of Christianity is because it was all about the things that you're not supposed to do. Don't read those books, don't play cards, don't dance, don't wear makeup, don't, you know, all the things. It was all the things you're not allowed to do. You're like, ah, it's super restrictive. Here's what I need you to understand. In the same way that you don't let your kids eat 14 Snicker bars right before bedtime, and your kids whine and complain and go, oh, you're so restrictive. You know, let me, let me live my life, mom. You know, like, let me follow my truth. No, God goes, that's a really dumb idea. All right. And I'm not restricting you because I want bad things for you. I want you to miss out on these things. I'm trying to get you to understand that, that there is a greater joy than Snicker bars. And this is, this is the father. He's, he's trying to get us to be able to, to walk with him and talk with him and learn from him and go, there's a greater joy than the money that you can make in this world. There's a greater joy than just being at peace with everybody. There's a greater joy than just being comfortable and secure. There's a greater joy than these things. And they're found in me. And this discipline actually is what begins to actually give us this freedom. Because when I've practiced the discipline of guarding my heart and protecting my mind. And I've laid off 
these weight and sins that entangle me, well, now that sin that used to hang me up, I'm free from it. Now these things, because I've studied the word and I've seen the revelation of God, now the lies of the world, they don't pass my biblical lie detector test anymore. And I know from the get-go that that, it's a half-truth. And a half-truth is holy from hell. And I can't hear that anymore. I follow my Savior. See, in this room, we all want these things. We all want spiritual health, mental health, and physical health. Everybody in here, we want health in these areas. And we talk about spiritual health. That's why a lot of you come to church. I want spiritual health. And our, our culture, our world's talking about these things. Spiritual health, we want it. And, and, and some people try to rub weird colored rocks to get spiritual health. And some people follow Jesus to get spiritual health. But people are after it. And I think it's a sign of the human condition that that's the broad spectrum we're on. Rocks and looking at the stars and thinking because somehow I was born in January that this is gonna be what's happening to me this week. And then Jesus Christ died for me. There's a giant spectrum, but everybody is after some spiritual health. And then the other side is mental health. And this is huge in our society right now. Mental health. People take mental health days from work. It's, it's talked about probably more than ever. And I love that some of the stigma around mental health has been lifted. And we all want health in that area because it's hard up here sometimes. And then there's the physical health. And obviously, we don't have to talk about this one. You understand this one. Everybody wants this. We want to be able to walk up a flight of stairs and not be huffing and puffing. We want to be able to, to get a common cold and not take us out for four weeks. We want to look good at the beach. We all want these things. But here's the problem. As much as we want health in all these areas, the thing that very few of us actually want is the thing that actually leads to health in these areas. The thing that leads to health in these areas if I want spiritual health, I have to have spiritual discipline. There's just no way to get there. If I want mental health, well, I have to have mental discipline. If I want physical health, well, I have to have physical discipline. See, these things are, like when you see it up here like this, you go, well, man, why have I never realized that? It's because that is Satan's greatest job is to keep you distracted from the simple yet powerful truths that are right here in God's word all along. And, and, and guys, track with me. This is our faith. We're not a resurrection before a crucifixion thing. We're a crucifixion first. Pain, then glory. That's our faith. So when it comes to like the other aspects of our life, our mental life, our physical life, and our spiritual life, it's the same way. You, you don't get to spiritual health without going through the spiritual disciplines. You don't get to mental health without going through mental disciplines. You don't get to the physical health without going through those things. Now, again, when we talk about discipline, I'm not just talking about discipline for the sake of being disciplined so that you're some weird robot Christian who's just walking around, do not struggle with that. You know, like that is not God's goal for your life. It's not robotic discipline. It's discipline that actually turns into a heart that is infused with devotion to a father who loves you and cares for you. And this is where I would go back to what we talked about last week, this, this understanding of how God's devotion and our devotion to God actually works. I will never, this is me down here, God the Father showing his devotion. Clearly the most biggest giant way that God shows his devotion to me is through the son, showing his devotion to me, going and living, on a, going, living 
life down here on earth, dying on a cross. When I see what Jesus has done for me, then it helps me go and be. The Holy Spirit is the one who does it. Helps me be devoted to Jesus. Then his devotion works through me and in the areas that I'm supposed to be devoted as a husband, a dad, a calling, and you've got your own list. And again, those are all not going in a way that where it glorifies me back down here. But if the devotion is really infused and really is coming from the fact that I have looked back and seen how Jesus is actually devoted to me, well, then that thing is gonna continue to flow. And my devotion as a husband it's going to glorify God. My devotion as a pastor is going to glorify God. My devotion as a, as a dad or a husband, it's all going to glorify God. And then that's going to continue to circle and float and flow right around. It's not just discipline for the sake of being disciplined. It's discipline that knows I'm never going to get devoted unless I start at discipline. And through that discipline, what God does is he shows us the secret to becoming unstoppable. Because you come to this and you read all this and you go, man, that's all so rich. And I love the theology. I love how he explains the purpose of the pain. But then you gotta come to this passage and go, why in the world is he telling them this? Here's why. This pastor, I believe the Holy Spirit has let him know and understand that coming to this fledgling church is persecution. And he relabels persecution and the pain of it as discipline from the father that proves that he loves you and cares for you. But what he knows, and this is why he says the discipline leads to a harvest. That's verse 11. It leads to a harvest of righteousness. What he's saying to that church is that the hardest things that you're going to go through are going to lead to the greatest harvest. The problem is we all want a great harvest, but we don't want to go through what's hardest. What he's trying to get them to understand, and I'm trying to get you to understand, is we've got to stop being afraid of the hard things because it is the hard and even the painful things that the church, the early church, our forefathers, the story that you're written into, it is the hard things that actually allowed the church to grow and explode. The reason you're in this room on a completely different continent than where this whole story began is not because everybody in the church was well-liked and well-loved and they kept the peace with all the powers that be. The reason you're in this room is because this crazy message of the gospel interrupted the regularly scheduled program of the world. And the world and the forces of darkness that run it hated that and did everything that they could to try to snuff out this gospel message. Much to their demise, they did not realize that the harder you try to push this gospel message down and kill the gospel message carriers, it only comes back stronger. Why? Because the things that you could do that seem like they're the hardest, the worst things you can do to those crazy bunch of Christians is actually the thing that led to the greatest harvest for that crazy group of people that became known as the Christians. And that's why you're here. But my fear is that we've lost that my fear is that we would be a church who says, oh, hard things are coming. Let's just be quiet and not make a noise and just, just deal with it and just, I don't know. And I don't want to tell anybody these things because I don't want to get sent to HR, you know, and just shut up and not preach about this and talk about this and tell people where I'm at on this. No, he's going, no, no, you're my church. Don't be silent. Stand up, be bold with your love. And then what, whatever happens, happens. And know that the worst thing that they can do to you 
If history of the church proves nothing, it proves this, that the worst thing the world can do to the church is the best thing that the world can do to the church. Kill it, stuff it out. You can't do that. And this, 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 is, this is the call that I believe God's calling us to get back to, to understand, to wrap our souls around on a deep, deep level. And this, the pastor was trying to teach him this because he wanted them to become unstoppable. And he knew that if they learned this key, this key habit of rising back up, they would be unstoppable. No matter what punched them, they got back up. No matter what punched them, they got back up. It's one of my favorite things. That's why I love that my, my boys both play baseball. It's the, it's the sport where you fail more than you succeed. And I love that they play that because they're learning how to get back up. And the church has got to learn this. There's this verse in the Proverbs that I think this pastor probably had tattooed somewhere on him. Proverbs 24, 16. The righteous falls seven times and rises again. That's why I said, what, what was the fruit that the discipline would yield? Righteousness. He says, the thing that separates the righteous from the unrighteous is not how perfectly they walk. The thing that separated the righteous from the unrighteous was who got back up. That's why he says to this church, in light of them understanding verses three through 11, three through 11 that you have a father who is the pressure, the things that are pushing you down and are crushing you are not just the world just being really mean and evil. It's actually God loving you. Now that you get that, you go, oh, well, I'm fired up. I can get back up. My hands are now lifted because I'm looking to the one who had his nail hands pierced for me. My knees aren't shaking in fear anymore because I'm watching and I'm remembering the one who with shaking knees walked the hill of Golgotha and then was crucified for me. And now that strength, that resurrected strength is in me. And this is the key is now we understand that the risen one resides in us. So world, impose whatever discipline, pain, persecution you want to. We are a church that is the church of the resurrected one. The resurrected one. Not just the good example one. Hear me, he's not just a good example. He's a resurrected one. And if you really believe he lives in you, then that resurrection power is in you to rise up. And I'm just telling, I want to talk to somebody today. Man, in my life, I've experienced something that some of you in this room have experienced. Just nod at me if you felt this. You know what it's like to feel quit on. Maybe for some of you, it was a marriage. And you did everything you could to try to make it work. And you just felt like somebody quit on you. They just gave up. Some of you got a parent. And there's not in the picture. And you, were, you weren't a gangbanger in Compton, running the streets. And so they just like, oh, I can't have anything to do with them. It's dangerous. No, like you were a good kid. You made an honor roll. You made all-star teams. And they weren't there. They quit on you. And it's really, really bad when, when they were there for a little while. They were in your story. They showed you a little bit of love. And then you watched some imposed discipline happen in their life. And this is what you guys need to understand. Because some of you, you're feeling the weight of the world right now. When you cop out and check out because you're weight feels like it's too much, there is always collateral damage. 
Men in the room, if you quit on Jesus, you didn't just quit on Jesus. You quit on your wife if you have one, and you quit on your kids if you have one. You cannot be a committed father and a committed husband without him. Like some of you in this room, I know what it's like to feel quit on. And what's hard is when you feel quit on by the person that you most would want to never quit on you. I'll be the first to tell you, it's really hard to be a man after God's own heart when the only man who you wanted to be after your heart wasn't. But here's the glory of the gospel. When that person quits on you, it reveals to you an idol. Someone who you may have put in the place of God in your life and had longed for something from them that really only God could provide to you. And the blessing hidden in the curse of their rejection is that it slingshots you into the one who will never quit on you. The one who went step by step up a hill called Calvary, faced the scars and the nails and the whips and the beating and went all the way to and through the storm that this world could bring on him and refused to quit on you. Who cried out like we just read in chapter five with these loud shouts of anguish and pain, yet said, not my will be done, but your will be done. And when you can look at this Jesus who did not quit on you, and then you can, track with me, don't just control alt delete the person who quit on you. You felt what that felt like. The reason I will be the father that I will be to my boys, the reason I will be the uh, the husband that I will be to my wife is because I felt what it was like to be quit on. And hear me on this, I wanna repurpose your pain. That is a gift, friend. A gift where you can put a flag in the ground and go, my kids will never know what it feels like to be quit on by a father. My kids will never know what it's like to be quit on by a parent. My wife will never know what it's like to be quit on by a husband. My husband will never know what it's like to be quit on by a wife. My friend who I love, they will never know what it's like to be quit on by a friend. My church family, they will never know what it's like to be quit on by someone who was supposed to be there when times were the hardest because you felt it and you refused to let anybody else because you'd now turned that wound into a weapon. Not just because you've looked at the wound and the wounder, but because you've looked at the healer. And you let him put in perspective what's been done to you so that now you get to live out verse 13. As I run this race, I clear every obstacle out because what am I on? I am on a path. And what I know is that there is a Titus Shoemake and an Ezra Shoemake who will walk this path behind me. And my job is to make sure that there are no obstacles in the way for them. And so if I had to be the one, and some of you are having to be the ones who go through the hell on earth right now, Here's what you need to understand. You going through some of the hell on earth that you're going through is paving the way and clearing the path for some who are following after you. And I know that's tough. 
But hear me on this. God only chooses the ones to go through that hell on earth to clear the path of the ones to go behind if they are actually strong enough to go through it. He's chosen you for a purpose for this season, for this time, so that you would make a change in your family that will never, never not be talked about as that being the moment when things change for people with our last name. And every time the story is told, they'll remember what Jesus did in and through you. And know without a doubt, it was not by your strength. It was by the Holy Spirit living through you. And you mastered the art of being an unstoppable Christian because you realized you had an unstoppable Christ that you were running after. And my hope and my prayer is that we, as we commune with him today, that you would allow this unstoppable grace to wreck your heart so that you run free and weightless. That the discipline that you now seek is not a pain you're afraid of, but a pain that you rejoice in because you are being treated like your Savior. And you allow the devotion to well up as your pain has now been repurposed. Not as something sent to kill you, but as something sent to secure your eternal life. as you yearn for, long for, fully seeing the face of the one who gave it to you. I pray that you close your eyes and you pray with him today that you feel his love just wash over you. Cure you from what ails you. If you're here today and you want to surrender to this Jesus for the first time, I'd love to baptize you. We already got one baptism that's getting ready to happen, so please stick around so we can rejoice with this young man who's getting baptized. If you're here and you want that as well, meet me back out there at the welcome table. And there'll be some people who help get you back there to give your life to Him as well today. Just pray and commune with Him. Father, I praise you for your love and grace. We thank you that in the midst of our hardships, you are here. As my brothers and sisters, that we as a church will be able to be whatever resource we can be, to be your love, to be your care, to be the hands and the feet that wrap around them and care for them and draw them away from what they're going through. And Jesus, I thank you for not quitting on me. All the times maybe when I've even said I quit on you. carrying it.